Well, th- hey, thanks for that, uh, that slam dunk that you threw down on me there a, a month or so ago. I mean, does anybody, like, look at a sunset, like, on a beautiful day? What is that cat doing? Uh, Jim is doing that swooshy thing again. I already gave him a little bit of shit. Am I allowed to say shit? I gave him a little bit of shit. And welcome to episode 42 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host, Adam McKinnon, joined as often by my co-host, Jim Passon Jr. Jim. Hey, how are you doing tonight? Doing all right, man. And uh, I am uh, I'm very happy to introduce our guest uh, for this week's show on episode 42. I swear I didn't plan it this way. Uh, Randy Wilkins, he's a three-time Emmy Award-winning director and editor from Bronx, New York. CEO and founder of Pam Sun Productions and extremely well-informed Yankees fan, I might add. Thank you so much for joining us this week, Randy. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I uh, I also like that uh, opening uh, music. That that <laughs> that song. That song jams, man. I like that. Yeah, that would. So uh, a quick shout out to my my. That's actually a band I was in uh, up in the Northeast. Uh, the Collingwood. Uh, check them out. A uh, lot. There, there's it's some fantastic funky stuff. I love playing with that band. Um, and yeah, shout out awesome. to that slapped. I like that. <laughs> shout out to Chris Malinowski for letting me use that for the intro. Uh, us bass players, you know, they he we have an uh, we have an affinity for the for the funky stuff, so I can get down with that. Um, yeah. So I brought you. You know, we uh, initially uh, we'll get to what initially brought you to the show, but I wanted to talk to you because. You know, we were going to do a show last week and uh, we rescheduled and you were telling me, man, I got this project I'm working on. It's about to come out. And I had no idea what was coming. And so can you tell folks about your your latest work with Major League Baseball? Sure. Yeah, I'm the director of the Jackie Robinson Day short film for us to remember. It came out on Friday on Jackie Robinson Day, the official day. Obviously, uh, they honored Jackie's legacy. Uh, throughout the weekend but um yeah i directed that film i'm very proud of it mookie betts was the narrator for it we Mm. used um some of jackie's words from his autobiography i never had it made um elgin ward dally came on to uh, adapt some of the words from the autobiography and craft it into a great narrative and it's been all over the place it's been exciting it's been exciting to people to see people uh quote the film left and right and um, it's nice to be a small part of this larger conversation that the the nation is having right now. It, it's such a critical time for that too. And, you know, this wasn't like what I, what you noticed, you were very quick to credit, uh, you know, a friend of the show, Jeff Passan as somebody mm-hmm. that you talked to about, about this, about this. Can you tell me what kind of role that he played in the, in this for you? Uh, really he just helped us spread the word. Mm-hmm. Um, this was, this was a collaboration between, uh, MLB, their marketing team and their PR team and, and myself, uh, through the process of making it. But, um, Jeff immediately responded to it, reached out to, to see if I could speak a little bit about the project and the now, I guess, 96 hours of, of protest and, mm-hmm. and statements that a lot of the, uh, the players and the teams made in major league baseball and, um, 
I'm very thankful that it resonated with him and, and he thought that it was important enough to, to do a nice feature on. And yeah, I mean, Jeff just, just uses it to, to amplify the piece and, and spread the work. Yeah. It's, it, you know, and it, it, you, you talk a little bit about the, uh, the, what's been going on. And I mean, and we're not, we're not talking just to, you know, it, it's something that transcends the diamond. It transcends the stadium. It really is a massive conversation we're having as a society at large. And, you know, there's, there's so much to say on that, but I'll try to keep it as much to, this is a baseball podcast. I'll try to keep it as much to baseball as 2020 has allowed us to. Um, but, um, you know, I kind of do wanted to, to touch on that, you know, Jackie's legacy and how it stands up and how it holds up today. You know, the game is really, you know, it's still very, it's very criminally underrepresentative, underrepresentative of society. And, and I wonder what you, what, how you look at that, you know, having now having really dived into, to Jackie and his work and what he want, would have wanted to see in, in the game today. And, you know, it, it struggles to attract, you know, players of color, specifically, you know, in black communities, um, you know, you see the gestures, you see what, what's going on right now. Do you see this as a pivotal, as a pivot point where we could see some substantive change in the game? I'm being honest, not really. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm hopeful, but I don't think that we're at that point yet because I don't think that this is solely a major league baseball problem. I think it's a, baseball problem throughout the amateur ranks. I think it's a problem on the youth level. I think that there's there's a lot of things happening right now that while I don't believe is intentional, I do think that the consequence of the evolution of the business of baseball and the amateur and youth ranks has unfairly excluded black players from participating in the game. Um, the financial costs are skyrocketing um the almost the um aau style uh of travel baseball has really changed the dynamics um and the demographics of, of who plays the game um it just makes it on these lower levels or these younger levels more difficult to get into the game and sustain being able to play in the game um because of all of these these barriers in a way that have started popping up and as much, you know, a game like basketball is way, way more accessible. Um, playing football on the high school level is honestly more accessible mm -hmm. um, for, for young black athletes. And to get into that circuit of travel ball and showcase ball um, there, there's natural exclusions as far as I'm concerned. So I think that this isn't simply a uh, major league baseball issue. I think it's a, uh, national issue for the, the sport of baseball and i know that um mlb has the academies and has other institutions that they're trying to put into the fabric of youth development in baseball but i don't think that that's enough i think that um and it's not the responsibility of major league baseball as far as i'm concerned to address all of these issues i think that um colleges need more scholarships um colleges need to expand their recruiting um, high schools, you know, can can do a better job of, of bringing in black athletes to play baseball. But again, it's on the amateur level outside of schools as well. Um, 
the again the AAU kind of model for for travel baseball has become a major issue and I think that that's one of the the bigger things and, and obstacles right now for getting more black players into the game. So would you say that, you know, cause it's the whole, I wonder sometimes about this whole chicken and the egg thing. Cause I, I agree with you. I think it's, you know, it's become too almost transactional. You know, it's, you know, the baseball mm-hmm. is very quick to send, you know, academies into Latin America for cheap talent, you know, and yet in the inner city, in a lot of, you know, black communities, there's very little baseball representation. A lot of, you know, I've read stories of, of, you know, you know, black kids growing up and not being introduced to baseball in really any form mm-hmm. until they're, they're teenage, late teens. And, you know, I, I can't help, but, but wonder, you know, where does it start with the, uh, with the game going out to the community or does the community say, you know, this is something that we need to invest in. You know, like where do, where does where do you think that process that process can most effectively start? I don't know. It's a tough question because it, it is a chicken and an egg situation. But I think they go hand in hand. I'm not. I think that they're kind of in step in lockstep with one another. So mm-hmm. uh, communities can invest more in infrastructure and, and have better fields. Um, there could be more little leagues that are just public little leagues. Like a lot of us grew up being a part of. Um, and I, and then I think the scouting community can do a better job of going to communities that aren't in places that they're used to going to. I think that that's also part of the process that is, is broken. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that scouts from teams actively go into black communities or, diverse communities where they could see more amateur black baseball players. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- this is another thing that I think that we can probably get into when we <laughs> talk about uh, the the original reason why I was yeah. invited to the it, pod, but it's going to come um, up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I also think analytics has a lot to do with this. And, and this is something that oddly or, maybe not oddly, but I, I think it needs to be a larger part of the conversation and how players are evaluated and how analytics serves as a, a gatekeeper in a way for the way that we view players mm-hmm. and the way that amateur players are evaluated. Um, and I think that, um, and, and there's nothing wrong with analytics. I love it. Like I can get into it. I, I think that they're a great tool. Like this isn't some like get off my lawn thing or some like yelling at a cloud or whatever. Like, yeah. Like I, I totally embrace it. I mean, I, I write for a blog that is like heavily into analytically based uh, analysis, but I do think that analytics um, one downside of it is that it has um, created some barriers that can lead to exclusion of certain types of players. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember uh, Bradford Davis and I spoke with um two minor league, two black minor league baseball players um, recently. And just in in, in the way that they were talking about their experiences of of being scouted in that process um, and how the initial um, scouting reports always relied or or referred back to their athleticism and not their like baseball IQ Mm -hmm. um, also gave me an idea of, of, the way that 
black athletes, young black athletes are just evaluated in the prisms that they're, that they're seen through. Um, so I, I think that there are so many layers to it. I think they're all in lockstep. The community um, can invest in, in, in ways to help provide a better infrastructure and access. But I also think that um, there are a lot of other things going on that trickle down from the professional leagues that, that end up impacting the way that black kids get into the game and, and stay in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of black kids that love to play, but when they get to a certain age, there's really no incentive or reason for them to stay around. So they get into sports that are more accessible and, and easier to, to be a part of and, and excel in uh, outside of baseball. Sure. Yeah. A sport that's difficult to get into and then so easy to get back out of. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, yeah. It doesn't really um, give a chance to, it breeds a, a success, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't really give you the 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 proper pool of players that uh, belong on the field. So yeah, it's 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 a shame to see how baseball has um, gotten so expensive, and then yeah, the travel ball. It's just access to it. it isn't like when I grew up, right? I mean, you used to be able to find any kid that could you know, grab a glove, get some shoes on. We didn't have to wear cleats or anything like that and get into a league for like 25 bucks. And then the parents, right. There was a field down the street. Right. And then when you weren't playing, you were playing stick ball out in another field, right. Or in the street in the middle of the road. Right. But you just don't see it today. I don't see that running around in my community at all. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating. Go ahead. I think that it's, I mean, we're, we're talking about a specific community of athlete, but I think across the country, there's just a, a, a dearth of access to to baseball you know even just fields I mean in New York a lot of the fields are turf now they're not grass um, they're not always well kept even if they are turf fields um, I don't know a lot of little leagues that kids could play in there, there are a couple in the Bronx there's mm-hmm. a couple um, in the in the outer boroughs but um, even even in the little leagues, it's just like kids are getting the one-on-one training and, and you know, getting into these uh, these baseball factories. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the training is so specific and everybody's like trying to be driveline for, for the youth that, you know, just even on that level, like just the access to like one-on-one coaching changes the game as well instead of just going out and playing baseball like mm-hmm. everything is specialized instead of just literally going outside to play a game of baseball right like where you're the whole outfield it. and you know you're just you're just you're just playing because you love it did, did you grow right. up playing ball at all and do you uh how were you introduced to the game oh i was introduced to the game like as a baby i mean my mom <laughs> would that was the one way for my mom to to Kate, you know, do things that she needed to do for herself was just like plot me in front of the TV and I would just watch baseball and I wouldn't move. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's always been a part of my life. I played, I played in college. I had an invited tryout with the Kansas City Royals between my junior and senior year in college. Wow. So, uh, baseball has been a part of my life since as far back as I can remember. So, um, I remember I wasn't always in leagues, but like growing up, we always played pickup games. Mm-hmm. So we would get a tennis ball, get an old wiffle ball bat, put some, uh, stuff it with wet newspaper. Yeah. And just have like different color electric tape to like add some like flares to the bat. And we would just play baseball all day. 
So then when we played in these games, in these leagues, you know, we had our own like little flair. But I mean, we were playing like literally every day. We played it in a place we called the cage. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, baseball has been a part of my life since the beginning or as far back as I can remember. It's fascinating because, you know, I'm, I'm 34 years old. So I, I, when I grew up, it was, you would watch, you know, I grew up watching the Braves on TBS, you know, living Mm -hmm. in, in like sort of Delaware, South Philly area. And I used to, uh, and you would watch the, you know, watch the game. Right. And then like after like a couple of innings, like you're like, I, I want to go outside and play. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's mm-hmm. sunset. You you know, we had a nice like little green space out there. You just run out there. Whoever could come could come. You know what I mean? And, you know, I, I, I do see a little bit and, and I guess it's a little bit of age catching up with me because I do feel like, man, there's just the kids got the screens and they got all this stuff going on. You know what I mean? And it, it does. I wonder what baseball and again, like you, I agree with you, the onus isn't necessarily just on the game and it's not just on everyone else. It's a, it's a, it's a hand in hand commitment. I wonder what needs to happen to, to bring the game back to that sort of or sense of organic fun that, that seems kind of lost now. I think part of it too is the game needs stars that are out there that inspire kids to play baseball. I mean, right. You know, little kids want to be LeBron. They yeah. want to be honest. You know, they, they, they see people that look like them that are excelling at the, the highest level and they're constantly on their phones. They're constantly in their social media spaces. Like we follow baseball real closely. So we know who the stars are, but does a regular kid like, you know, who, who might not be as like engaged with the game day to day as we are, do they know who Moogie Betts is? Right. You know, do they know who, um, I don't know, who Javi Baez is? Right. Like, they don't know these players. And it's very, it's become uh, niche in a way. So I think that one thing is to just have stars so kids can say, oh, I want to be like him. You know, like when Ken Griffey Jr. was playing, he had a sneaker. So you could wear a sneaker. Right. You know, you could wear your hat backwards. Like he he made it like, he made it cool to, to play baseball and I don't think that we're at the point right now where there's a player that we can point to immediately that on the commercial side transcends the game of baseball. I mean, obviously LeBron does, um, Patrick Mahomes does, Mm -hmm. you know, like we, we immediately know who those, who those athletes are, regardless if you follow basketball or football religiously, but I don't know who that would be for, for baseball. Right. Well, so, and especially for a sport that only has a 8%, you know, right. representation of black players in the league, it's, it, you're hard pressed to, you know, I could absolutely see like, there's no one that looks like me on the, you know, if, if there's a, if I'm a, you know, for black kids across the country, they don't look up and they see, you know, on Sunday night baseball, they see people gushing over Bryce Harper and they see right. people gushing over Mike Trout. Like, they don't see someone out there that represents them and says, hey, that's, it's not like LeBron and, you know, a, a clear line you can draw. Right. And, uh, and that kind of, you know, that, that's a, that's a, that's a real issue for the game. And it kind of plays into, you know, the, it was a perfect segue. You, you, mu- you must do podcasts all the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, you know, it, and you talk about Ken Griffey Jr. And, 
you had just like, a, in my opinion, just a, just a, you can't, you know, the video is not going up, but just a, mwah, like a, like a chef's kiss <laughs> uh, of a tweet that you put out. And I hope you don't mind if I quote it here. Uh, oh, that's fine. But, uh, you know, uh, quote, I, I'm going to say this now. You can feel how you want to feel about it. A healthy Ken Griffey Jr. is a flat out better player than Mike Trout. Don't give me some talk about stats without acknowledging Griffey's injuries. Griffey changed the game. I, of course, you know, try to appropriately do the syntax and everything. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. <laughs> but, like, you know, I, I wonder, and, and this is, goes to the core of the question. Jim, and Jim, you and I were talking about this before uh, Randy joined us. We have, I feel like in baseball, we have a very hard time separating the best or the statistically best versus the most culturally important. And I I wonder if you think that that goes to the core of the issue. Because to me, I agree with you. Griffey is, Griffey changed the game from the backwards hat to the absolutely gorgeous swing to the way that he played, it was just so, uh, I, I guess, uh, away from the norm. You know, and Trout, you could fall asleep watching Trout hit four home runs. Right. Uh, He's a robot. Right. Robot. So, I mean, so. a highly functioning, great robot. Yeah. <laughs> robot the last, yeah. And, and, yeah. and so I wonder what, if you could speak to that, like the sort of the idea that we, we can't, we have a hard time separating the cultural impact of a great player and just a, the, a, a player that's so statistically good, but doesn't chooses not to use that platform. Well, I think there's, I think there's two things. Cause I, I, I probably should have made them two separate tweets. <laughs> uh, now that I look back on it, because I, I think I was talking about two different things. Like I honestly believe, I know most people disagree with me, like, especially of a certain uh, age range, disagreed with like what I said about Griffey and Trout but the the two things that I noticed was one yes the cultural impact was something that was lost on people I think that they know about it and I, I think that in the comparison the natural reaction is to say yes Griffey was more impactful culturally and uh, you know it was pretty straightforward but I don't think that they fully understand what that means unless they experienced it themselves like he he altered the course of the way the game was received and perceived for a long period of time. Like a healthy Griffey changed the dynamic of the sport of baseball, both commercially and just the actual like industry itself. Um, but the, the bigger thing that I noticed in these conversations was even within the conversation of who was better defense was completely disregarded mm -hmm. so because we're so statistically inclined now which again is fine the definition of what made a player great is very specific now and it's only rooted in offensively leaning leaning statistics which even then don't really account for the errors that the two players played in. So whenever I had, you know, I had like spirited debates with people about this. And every time I brought up the defense, it was completely, it was disregarded. Mm -hmm. And the response always was trout was so much better of a hitter than Griffey that it outweighed the defensive di dis uh, difference. And I said, well, first of all, he's not that much better of a hitter. 
everything is the difference is rooted in on base percentage. If we're looking at it, like Griffey was a better power hitter than Mike Trout. I mean, it's he, if you go by the first eight years in any of the powers statistical categories, they're either like neck and neck or Griffey was better. So really the conversation turns to on base percentage and Griffey had a 380 on base percentage. It's not like he was some schlub that like never got on base. But the difference is in era, like Ken Griffey played when he was the three hitter and his responsibility was to drive in runs. It wasn't to set up for like Jay Buhner or Edgar Martinez. He had to be the guy. He was the anchor of the lineup. Mike Trout now is allowed to take his walks and rely on the guy behind him in that manner. You don't, I mean, he has an incredible eye. He's earned it. Like he's an amazing player. But I think that Griffey was capable of having a 410, 420, 430 on base percentage too, if that's how you compensated players right. at that time to do it. You know, so I, I think that there are caveats in that conversation. But I was the one thing that bothered me was just the dismissal of the role of defense and that everybody's reliance on statistics really undermine that there was another there's another aspect of the game that has incredible value you know it's like we don't value defense until somebody doesn't play it well right so like i'm a yankee fan so when it comes to gary sanchez let's say you know everybody's enamored by gary's bat when he's not struggling like going through the nonsense that he's going through now but they're quick to like point out that he has all these past balls and it's like, well, you don't care about the other parts of his defensive game that that are pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter unless he's doing something wrong. Right. And it feels like that mentality f- came into the conversation about Griffey and Trout. It's the gotcha. It's the gotcha thing with the defense. Yeah. 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 I mean, even when they even I'm sorry, even when they like compared the stats and they were, you know, bring up like the defensive metrics that clearly showed Griffey was way better than Trout. The, the, I'm telling you the the fault response was, but it doesn't matter because Trout's a way better hitter. And it's like, well, you're disrespecting Griffey now. He's not Steve Finley. You know, he wasn't Marquise Grissom, even though Marquise Grissom and and, uh, Steve Finley were, were really good players. I mean, he's, he's like one of the greatest. He was going to break the home run record if he was healthy. We're not talking about a scrub. Right. Jim, what do you think about that? It's uh, like the old stats, right? Where, you know, you got your RBIs and runs. And and then when they lean towards defense, it was like assists, putouts, and fielding percentage, right? I think the old stats used to give more respect to defense than the new analytics uh, side of things right now, right? Where, I mean, we have OPS plus, we have ERA plus, we have WRC plus, we have so many things. And it's so offensively heavy that there's plenty of, there's, there's not plenty, I guess. There's quite a few defensive stats on the, on the high analytics side, right? But they get drowned down more than fielding percentage ever did in the old days, right? So it just, it, it is, it's completely dismissed as quick as it's shown. And it, it could be like the goofiest number, you know, it could be like, you know, Kenny Lofton's numbers that he had out in center field and people like, yeah, but he didn't have power, right? It just immediately dismissed Mm -hmm. how great of a fielder he was. And then he was always on playoff teams, right? It's just Andrew Jones, same thing. And I mean, greatest Mm -hmm. defensive center fielder in history. And he's, and Mm -hmm. he's languishing at the bottom of hall of fame ballots everywhere. Um, You know, he he should be a hall of famer. Okay. See, I knew Randy, I knew 
we yeah, were we were on this guy. we were on this level. That's that's my man right there. He's a, he's yeah. another one of those guys that you you could you had when you were a kid that you could have looked up to that you could be that person on the field, right? Mm-hmm. That that mm-hmm. flash, that pizzazz, the the things that Griffey brought to the to the table, right? I mean, we where do you get that now, right? I don't have Ozzy Smith doing backflips onto the field every game anymore. Who's right. doing that? Right. right? I mean, right. McCutcheon's pretty. I mean, lively out there, right? I mean, he's fun, right? But mm-hmm. But really, it's you know, it's a pretty dry league in comparison to what I used to watch growing well, up. It's a day. saturated league too, because in you know when Griffey was you know, in the early days, there was no Twitter. There's nobody like you know sitting right? there trying to hashtag. Oh, look at look at this look at this play. Oh, look you know Griffey can't play. You know it, it's it's like our takes are bottled and and screenshotted and and thrown everywhere. It's it's a league where I wonder if and, and Randy, what do you, I wonder what you think about this. It's, it's a league nowadays, a social media driven league, where it's too easy for people to look at a player. It makes a bad play in the field, you know what I mean? Or if they have a tough at bat, or you know they're going through a cold stretch, and they just get dumped on constantly. Mm-hmm. I wonder if. You know that natural the 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 game's built on failure, right? You know you failed seventy percent of the time, and you're Chipper Jones, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of batting average. So, do you, I wonder if you feel like not only is that amplified, you know, across the social media spectrum, but now you are a. a I look at Andrew McCutcheon, <clears throat> and you think about players that you know. I better I better keep my mouth shut because not only is everybody watching me with eyes waiting for me to fail. But now I'm already up against uh, being very under. I look around and I'm like, you know, if I'm a black player in the league, or if I'm a even a Hispanic player in the league, or an Asian player in the league, you know, it, it feels like it's even more vitriol that comes towards a player. So you know, I wonder if you if if you, what you thought about that. No, I agree. I mean, I I think it's tough, a very tough time to be a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because I think that there's so much access to information, people can quickly refer to certain st- statistics or underlying metrics to back up what they're saying. Um, and not, it might not totally be in line with what the organizations have with their metrics. You know, like there's a certain level of information that we all have access to, which is fantastic. But teams look at success and, and um performance in a different manner if we're being honest like we're looking at the the bottom of the barrel compared to what these organizations have so you know you have somebody like McCutcheon who um has obviously been a great player um injuries have kind of like slowed him down a little bit but I think he's still there's still a lot of value there um Mm -hmm. and he might not be like the power hitter that he once was um which would satisfy a lot of the analytics community but he still like has a lot of value to the Phillies. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, it is probably a fruitless situation for him to even engage with all of those things, especially because he knows what he needs to do for the team. He knows what he needs to do for the organization. So there's a lot of information that we just don't know about. We don't know how, you know, like what the Phillies want out of Andrew McCutcheon or, or what they're asking him to do. We're just looking at the end results and the cumulative cumulative nature of those results. Um, And I think that now one thing that people lose sight of is 
they're still trying to win games while we're trying to just like analyze performance. Mm-hmm. And there's like a, a big gap between those two things. So of course, everybody's competitive. You want your favorite team to win, but the way the prism that we use to view those things now is, is vastly different than let's say 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and the, the focus still for these teams is to win games and yes, is analytically driven and, and decision-making has changed over time, but they still need to win the game. I mean, their, their jobs are on the line based on wins and right. losses. So um, those things matter more to them than it does to us looking at it through a very specific prism. So it, it for somebody to answer your question, I don't, I don't think it's worth it for the athletes to engage because I mean, it's a, it's a lose, lose situation. Right. I mean, what you're not going to, there's just too many people with, and everybody has an opinion and you know, you have to go, you still have to go out and do your job regardless of what any of us say on Twitter. Right. So it's, it's not worth it. Just go out there and make sure that your teammates, um, respect what you do, appreciate what you do, that you're, you're there for the team. You're there for the organization. I think that honestly, for these athletes, that's the only thing that really matters. Cause that's who they, they're, ultimately accountable to they're accountable to their teammates in the organization not to like random people on the internet right (laughs) win games right just win games so so be a good teammate and find your way yeah where you're where you're shaking hands at the end Mm-hmm. It's it's so it, and again it it sort of plays in and kind of circles back around to the to the whole idea you know between what you know what Jackie Robinson Day means to everybody what it what it means to be a, a ball player in in the modern era and you know I can't help but wonder and I'm I'm not asking you to answer this as if you know or you know or, or, or for Jackie or anything like that but you know when as a as a game. When we we look at what Jackie accomplished, and we and we look to what he wanted to see, he wanted to see, you know, towards the end of his life, he he said, you know, I want to see a, a black face in that dugout, you know, as a manager, and you know, it took a took a long, way too long to get Frank Robinson in in that dugout, you know what I mean, and it took even way too long to get Buck O'Neill into an or a major league organization as a manager, so I I can't help but wonder, you know, what what do you think? Jackie looks at the game today. What do you and he and somebody says, Mr. Robinson, we're gonna give us one thing, give us one thing to do, put us, give us one thing to put us in the right direction. What do you what do you think that what do you think that would be? Ownership. Hmm. Ownership. It's I mean, be. there's only one black owner in the in the game. There's one black GM in the game. So I think right now. He'd be looking beyond the dugout. He'd be looking in the, the owner's box and, and who occupies that box? Who's who's making the ultimate decisions for a franchise and ultimately has influence in the league? You know, so you have Derek Jeter and you have Mike Hill, and that's pretty much it. Right. And they're in the same organization. So um, I think that it's really just – at this point, it's about ownership. I mean, one thing that we tried to get across in the film was, you know, part of Jackie's activism was economic sustainability for the black community. And I think, you know, looking beyond the playing field and and going along with with what Jackie really wanted post playing career was, you know, 
things like ownership of a team. So I think that that's, that's where he would be looking. I don't think, I think he would be looking beyond the field at this point. And if you, if you really think about it, you know, if you have more diversity amongst the ranks of the owners, the league behaves differently. Yeah. The, the league will have different perspectives and differing opinions. And, you know, there, there isn't always a consensus with certain things. Like there would be, people would be challenged and you would be challenged by your peers, not by um, players or uh, fans or journalists. You'd be challenged by somebody that can look you dead in the eye and say, well, we're on the same level here. Right. This is a level playing field, truly. So I think that that's something that has to happen. There, there needs to be uh, more black and brown owners, women owners, women GMs. I mean, it's not just a, a race thing. I mean, there's there are not enough women in leadership positions in sports across the board, and we're starting to see that in football and basketball, but we're not really seeing it in baseball. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know the Giants have the the one uh, woman coach, but we don't. Kim Ng should have been a, a GM a long time ago. Mm-hmm. She's qualified, and then she had to, you know, now she's working for the commissioner's office. I mean, that's a, that's a great job, but she should have been running a team. Right. So I think that, you know, there's a there's a lot of issues on the playing field and in the dugouts, but I feel like there's a larger institutional issue um, when it comes to this specific topic, when it comes to ownership and and executing a vision who's the person executing that vision and is there diversity within those ranks and there isn't i mean i i I forgot about ken williams i mean he's a president of the white Sox now yeah um but again i mean that's one more person that we add to the list yeah it's still it's still vastly disproportionate and you know and like you said the game seems to be there there seems to be movement of uh, and i guess it's society that's really nudging this along that that culture that acknowledgement like the the ability to look around and say hey you know what like this is this does not represent society and this does not represent this we're not getting a lot of unique perspectives um and you know you, go ahead i'm sorry the uh, the ownership right i mean this isn't something that's Nobody's talking. I mean, I mean, that's not, it's somebody's talking about it, but it's not loud enough, right? We don't hear what Randy's talking about hardly at all, right? I mean, it's, it's a story that should be uh, discussed in depth, but we, we end up marching along with, with nothing, right? So, it's, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think about the, the A Rod and J Lo situation with the Mets. Mm-hmm. And you can say what you want about A Rod, like this, you know, this, this isn't a referendum on his past or, you know, all this, you know, the circus that follows him. But right. one thing that really stood out to me was it wasn't it was a failed bid because they just didn't have enough money. And they were going up against a hedge fund guy with a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was really reflective of part of the issue with getting ownership for black and brown people is just the the lack of access to like high 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 end financial resources right and that makes it difficult i mean that's it's not just that's not specifically a baseball problem obviously but um it's you know sports are reflective of society and i think that that's one area that is just never talked about and just having the financial 
resources and an ability to purchase a team. I mean, Jeter pulled it off, I think, probably because he was Derek Jeter. Um, and I think that the league um, respected that name, wanted that name in the game. And I think that that helped their bid a lot. Alex obviously isn't in the same boat as, as Derek Jeter. Right. Um, so, you know, it's just, it, there's so many factors to it. There's so many layers to it. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's just part of it. But I, I, again, I think ownership and general manager positions are, are critical pieces in this conversation. Right. Yeah. A-Rod known for those huge contracts. Right. He, he can't, can't afford it. Right. That's right. It's amazing, you know, to be able to say that because I mean, when he when he got those contracts, it was like good grief, you know, it was a ridiculous amount of money, right? And and for for twelve years, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. and here he is retired, and it's looking at you know helping with the bank to try to figure out if he could buy the Mets, right? Right. Yeah. Along comes super hedge fund guy. Yeah, I got the money for it. I'll just drop it. Yeah, I'll just drop it. Yeah, you know, and it's like, and he had Jennifer Lopez too. I mean, it's not right, like, right? Two uber rich people. Right, <laughs> it didn't matter. It, it's yeah, couldn't it, even get there. It's. I it, mean, if you took so if you took like all the owners and you took all the GMs and you took all the presidents of the team and you got like one giant photo with them all, right? What's it? it was just eighty-seven white guys, <laughs> and. There's and no female, females Jeter. in those. Yes. Yeah, right. There's no, there's no ladies in those positions. There's no color in those positions. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe if we put one of those pictures together, maybe people would talk about it more. But it's still the access, right? I mean, if you can't yeah. afford the access, it would look like a Republican congressman's staff. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's something. It's so. It really does hit the nail on the head. It's just, you know, if you don't have anyone to trumpet and to amplify the messages and the experiences of, of grow, of, you know, of the, those voices of black voices of, of voices of color in, in America, you're just not going to have a unique perspective. You're going to have the same people buying teams. And as the, t- as the, you know, what we didn't even talk about is how much those teams, the values have ballooned, mm-hmm. you know, it's just not yep. going to be accessible it's not going to be practical. I mean, if the the singer of of Jenny from the Block and the highest paid, you know, athlete, you know, up until you know the, the last few years in baseball history can't buy a team, there's there's got to be what billions between those two, and mm-hmm. and if they can't buy not just buy a team but buy a a purely like it's like clockwork profitable. Despite what whatever whatever GM said that I forget which owner said that was it that was it Crane who said that or that that I that baseball remember. yeah fuck him anyway but it, it's it's like <laughs> it, it, the fact that they it's such a sure investment I guess is what I'm saying it's like if you showed me hey like yep. these this is appreciated I'd throw every dime I had at it because I just know I'm going to turn a profit at the end it, mm. it it really does speak to the mono the monochromatic presentation of, of baseball across the country so so randy uh, also just i'm sorry real quick yeah. uh june lee from espn had a great piece like maybe about a month ago that also just talked about the the network the ivy league network that is just like taking over baseball which again is very exclusionary mm-hmm. you know it's, it's the the same old guys hiring the same old guys from the same old places and that network um 
it's just naturally ex- exclusionary, you know. And, and again, you can't get those challenging voices, those varied perspectives into the decision making, into the valuation of players, which then trickles down to who plays the game and who doesn't play the game. Right. You know, it's like the the decision makers are the same guys with the same systems trying to outsmart each other with like the next like nuanced version of that system that already exists. But then it trickles down to this larger system where it excludes certain players or like it has certain stereotypes and biases towards certain players. And then they, they're just not in the pipeline to play baseball. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's the, the gatekeeper, as you were saying earlier. So mm-hmm. I agree with you. Um, and so, so Randy, I, I got to tell you, thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to know, like, tell where, what's next, what's, what's, what's coming up for you? Like what should we on, be, be on the lookout for? Um, I have a couple, uh, projects, uh, that I'll be directing for, uh, Apple plus. Um, I did, um, the first season of deer dot, 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 which was on Apple plus, And we're going to, jump into the second season pretty soon and um i have one big project i can't mention it yet though <laughs> i have to like keep it under wraps but sorry um, we're not known for breaking news on this podcast i assure you <laughs> uh, sorry. Yeah, so um so yeah there's there's something uh pretty big on the horizon and you know it's tough to keep it to myself but uh i have to i have to do that for a little while longer but i'm i'm excited to share it uh pretty soon Awesome. I've never ever had anything that cool in my life before. So, uh, <laughs> what is what is the feeling like that that you're holding back? What's it What's it like? Am I? You sound like you're excited about this. Um, is it? I, it's kind of hard to put into words. Honestly, pretty, it's kind of surreal. Pretty nice. close but, um, to your heart. Type of. Oh word yeah, or? yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, I think it, it, it's going to be a great thing that a lot of people. I hope will uh, be excited for it when they hear it and, and we'll look forward to it. So it's, yeah, it's a great feeling. It's a little, it's hard to like keep it to yourself though. It's like, <laughs> you know, you just want to, you just want to share it and like share it, the excitement, but um, in due time. So I just have to be, I have to be disciplined. I have to be good. So yeah. Good things come to those who wait. That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, well, Randy, it was great talking to you and uh, we, we'd love to have you on uh, get back on the show when, you know, uh, maybe we can talk about this this new project. We'd really look forward to that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate the invite. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Randy. Thank you.